minded, Lord, of the, of the seasons that uh, come from your hand. We uh, thank you, Lord, that you are uh, sovereign over, over all of those things, that you instituted them, that you put them in the place. And Father, tonight we, uh, we find it hard to believe we're almost into November because we were just in the summer. And uh, before long, and it's going to come real fast, we're going to be into 2003. Life is uh, going by very, very quickly. It's, uh, it's accelerating. So we ask, Lord, for wisdom for every guy in this room, no matter where we are in life, no matter where we are in the race, if we're just getting started, if we're halfway, if we're uh, getting closer to the finish line, we pray for wisdom. We ask that you would help us to number our days so that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. We want to live, uh, we want to live correctly. We want to make good decisions. We've all, uh, we've all made decisions we wish we could have back, and we can't. And we're going to see tonight that uh, Paul had some of those, but he didn't let those things trip him up. Lord, give us, uh, give us hope for future decisions. Give us wisdom for what uh, is directly ahead of us. And minister to us and speak to us and encourage us tonight. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. i got to read this because I don't have it in my mind, but I liked it when I came across it. An engineer, an accountant, a chemist, and a bureaucrat were bragging about their smart dogs. The engineer called to his dog, T-square, do your stuff. The dog took out a paper and pen and drew a circle, a square, and a triangle, and everyone agreed he was a smart dog. The accountant said, slide rule, do your stuff. The pooch went to the kitchen, got a dozen cookies, and made four stacks of three. Everybody was duly impressed. Then the chemist said, beaker, do your stuff. The dog went to the fridge for a quart of milk, got a 10-ounce glass, and poured exactly eight ounces into it without spilling a drop. Everyone agreed that was incredibly profound. Then the bureaucrat said, coffee break, do your stuff. <laughs> coffee break then ate the cookies, drank the milk, chewed the paper, claimed he injured his mouth by doing so, filed a grievance for unsafe work conditions, put in for workers' comp, and took extended sick leave. <laughs> Usually when you read a joke at the beginning, you somehow tie it into the text. <laughs> but it was, I just liked it. It was too good. It was just too good to let it go by. We are in Philippians 3. Uh, bureaucrats get a bad rap because uh, they deserve it. <laughs> but Paul in Philippians, I actually do have a tie-in, believe it or not. In Philippians 3, Paul is not giving a bad rap to uh, bureaucrats. He's giving a bad rap to false teachers. Uh, Paul, Paul tried to be fairly diplomatic and uh, tactful, I think, at times with his words. I think he was a a type A personality. I think he held back at times. But when it came to false teachers, he didn't mince words. He was just like Jesus. You notice that the people that Jesus went after, I mean, he just, he, he just went after them by the throat were the false teachers, were the Pharisees. Uh, 
I was doing some studying today on the Sabbath. And uh, you, you know, a lot of us, we look at the Sabbath and we think Jesus perhaps was against the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't against the Sabbath. He was Lord of the Sabbath. But did he ever go after those Pharisees? Because, uh, you, you know, the Sabbath was meant to be, uh, I mean, it was, it was meant to be the best day of the week for those people. It, it was the first holiday. It was, uh, you know, we say, we have the phrase in our culture, TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. You know, they had TGIS. Thank God it's Sabbath. And when they said thank God, they really meant it. Uh, the Sabbath was their day off. The Sabbath was their break. Uh, the Sabbath was supposed to be a time of refreshment. It was supposed to be um, a time of recreation. It was supposed to be a time of worship. It was a good thing. But these Pharisees, what they did was, these guys uh, took their traditions, and what they did was they kept adding all kinds of stuff on to that good thing that the Lord had created. Uh, and by the time Jesus showed up, they had over 1,500 rules and regulations associated with the Sabbath. They killed it. They, they put an unbelievable burden on people. So Jesus just went after these guys. Uh, and they hated his guts because he made them look bad and because he took them to the Scriptures and because he made them, quite frankly, look like fools. Uh, that's what Paul did with false teachers. He didn't like them, and he didn't mince words, as we're going to see tonight. Now, what I want to do is go ahead and read the passage in Philippians 3. And uh, I'm going to read it out of the New American Standard Version, which I usually use, and then just to get the flow of it, because there's some pretty earthy language in here. Then I want to read it out of the message, uh, Eugene uh, Peterson's uh, translation. But let's start um, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 of Philippians. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Remember, he is in prison. He's in prison in Rome, writing to the church at Philippi. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard to you. He's going to repeat some things they've heard from him before, but there are certain things that bear repeating. There are certain things that are worth going over uh, more than once. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil. Now, you see, right off the bat, beware of the dogs. He has he not taken a Dale Carnegie course here on how to win friends and influence people. He could give a rip about that. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Uh, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. What he's doing here, Paul is a Jew. He's going into his religious credentials. That's what this is all about. Uh, this is sort of his resume. Uh, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God 
on the basis of him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now I'm going to stop there, although we're going to go through 15. And I'm going to wait a minute to read the text out of the message. Let's go ahead and set this up, because uh, right out of the blocks, Paul is going after the false teachers. Uh, John Flavel, you know, there have always been false teachers. Uh, we've got false teachers in the church today. Uh, false teachers have always been with us. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were false prophets who would uh, tell the... Uh, they would tell the people what they wanted to hear. They would tickle their ears, but they didn't have a legitimate message from God. So, so false teachers are nothing new. Uh, John Flavel said this. He says, by entertaining of strange persons, men sometimes entertain angels unawares. But by entertaining of strange doctrines, many have entertained devils unaware. Uh, these guys that Paul is referring to here were the Judaizers. And they had strange doctrine. They had doctrine that was contrary to the doctrine of the New Testament. Uh, and, and what their doctrine was, was devilish. Uh, because in essence, what they were doing, these Judaizers, uh, what they were doing is they were adding to the gospel. You see there in verse 2, he says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision. What these guys were doing is they were... Um, they, they had bought into a marketing scheme, if you will. Uh, probably the oldest marketing scheme in the world is to take a product that's been on the shelf for a while, and sales are sort of sagging and they're so, sort of slowing down. And so what you do, maybe you juice it up a little bit. But, but you know what I'm, you know I'm going to say here. What you do is you take a product and then you slap a sticker on it that says, New Improved. That's what you do. So if it's Tide, I mean, Tide's been around forever. But I'm sure if you were to walk down the, the, the aisle at Tom Thumb, you're going to see Tide in somewhere. Some, there's going to be some detergent, and it's going to say new, improved. Uh, you buy Valvoline or Pennzoil. One of those oils is going to have on it new, improved. Uh, you buy uh, razor blades, this Gillette thing. This guy was a genius this King Gillette. He, he was the guy that figured out. See, he'll give you the razor. I mean, he'll sell you the razor for 99 cents. He's not going to make money on, 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 the actual, on the actual thing itself. He's going to make money on the blades. And, and, you know, for years, there was just one blade. And then they came out with two blades. And what, a year ago, two years ago? Now they got three blades. I wonder what's next. <laughs> and they space it out. You know, it's a new, improved version. Now here's the deal with the gospel. The gospel cannot be improved. Can't do it. It's impossible. Um, if you have, your, if you have uh, your Bible with you, and most of you do, I can tell, why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Verse 15 and 16. Because uh, Paul is going to give us a description of the gospel. And we're going to see why the gospel cannot be improved. Uh, you can't improve something that's perfect. He says in uh, 116 of Romans, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, that's why in verse 15, Paul says, thus for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, say, here's the letter to the Romans, and you see in verse 15 that one of Paul's desires and one of his goals always was to go to Rome and preach the gospel. I mean, that's what he wanted to do. And, you know, Paul was always uh, planning out these, these trips. He was always going on these road trips to preach the gospel. And somewhere along the line, he wanted to go to Rome. Well, he got to Rome. Uh, as we've seen, he just didn't get to Rome by the way he thought he was going to go to Rome. He's in Rome right now preaching the gospel, but he is uh, chained to one of the Praetorian guardsmen uh, pretty much on a 24-hour basis. And he's preaching the gospel while he is under house arrest. Uh, but, but the gospel that he is preaching is, is the pure gospel. The problem with these false teachers is that they have added something to the gospel. And what these guys have done is, what they have said, is, is that they preach the gospel, but then they add to it circumcision because they were Jews. And circumcision was a big deal. So they have, they have attacked on to the gospel, to the fact that Christ died for our sins. They have tacked on to that. You must believe that. And you must also believe uh, to the point of being willing to be circumcised. Now, you won't find it in the scriptures. That was the false teaching. And uh, Paul, Paul hated this. He went after it with a vengeance. Uh, the way he describes these guys it's kind of ironic because uh, the first thing he, he basically calls them is he calls them dogs. Now, the thing that's ironic about that is that the Jews had a word for Gentiles, a nickname. What Jews would call Gentiles is they'd call them dogs. What Paul does here is that he takes these Jewish guys and he turns it on them and he calls them dogs. Now, back in Paul's day around the garbage dumps, see, he's not talking here about poodles. He's not talking here about these, uh, we, we have some friends, Bob and Judy Brown, and they uh, stayed with us a few months ago. They called and they were driving through, They'd, anyway, they were driving through, and they came by the house and, you know, we're having dinner, and about, a, I guess, maybe an hour after dinner, um, all of a sudden, Judy is holding this little white dog, and I, I thought, I hadn't seen it. I said, where did you get that? And she had her briefcase and had this little dog. I forget what it's called. It's not a dog. It's a mistake. It's, it's just this little, I mean, a sucker is small. And she carries it in her briefcase with her. That's not the kind of dog Paul's talking about here. In the garbage dumps, they would have these packs of dogs, wild, out of control dogs that would rip you apart. He's thinking pit bulls here. That's what he calls these guys. These guys are a bunch of flesh-tearing, uh, jugular-eating dogs. That's what, the, that's what these false teachers are. When they say, we're adding circumcision to the grace of God, he goes after them. He calls them dogs. He also calls them uh, uh, evil workers or doers of evil. What they were doing is evil because they're taking away from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. 
he goes on and he, he calls them false circumcision. Actually, he uses a term here. He's actually calling them mutilators. He, he's not messing around. Now, a lot of translators, they, particularly this passage, it kind of disturbs them because he kind of goes for the gusto here. The Greek word he uses there where they translate false circumcision, uh, it, it's actually, these guys are mutilators. These guys are slicing and dicing. You know circumcision. Yeah, you know circumcision. Okay. A delicate thing. What Paul is saying is, these guys, this is false circumcision. These guys are mutilators. Uh, th these guys are as wrong as wrong can be because they're adding something to the gospel. Now, there are always groups that are adding things to the gospel. They're around us all the time. Um, a lot of good folks in Roman Catholicism, uh, but Roman Catholicism adds to the gospel. Uh, works is added to the gospel. Uh, I used to pastor in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, my first church I pastored there. And you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, San Francisco and New Orleans are a lot alike because they're highly Roman Catholic, high Roman Catholic population, tend to be real liberal politically. They're both seacoasts, they're both port cities. A lot of immorality going on. You know, downtown New Orleans, downtown San Francisco, it's unbelievable what's going on. But they are uh, highly Roman Catholic. And the church that I pastored was uh, made up of, I'm going to say approximately 60 to 65% of the people were, were former Roman Catholics. Now, you know what's really interesting? You hand a Roman Catholic a Bible. And you let them start reading it, and they go crazy. Because they, they start finding stuff in that Bible that they didn't know about, like grace. Um, grace is an amazing concept, because they've been taught that uh, there has to be works. That's how you're saved. Um, uh, it, it always cracks me up, because they, they, I remember one guy coming up to me, and he said, did you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters? He said, yeah. He didn't know that because he'd never read the scriptures. He'd been taught, you know, the Virgin Mary, where she had Jesus, and she had, didn't have any more kids. Well, that's myth. She did. She had, Jesus had brothers, and he had sisters. Um, but, but see, the point is, there are different religions that add to the gospel. Um, Church of Christ teaches, uh, baptismal regeneration, teaches that you must not only believe in Christ, but that you must be baptized in water to be saved. Until you're baptized in water, you're not saved. That's not what the scripture teaches. Um, I've spoken in some unusual places. Um, I, I remember getting a call in the early 90s from a guy, and he was, he was up in Oklahoma, and he told me, he was talking real fast and he was real excited. And he said, man, I'm, I'm glad I tracked you down because he said, I'd like to invite you up here to talk to our, our men. And we, we think we can get 1,000, 1,200 guys. And uh, he says, I'm with such and such Church of Christ. And we'd really like to have you come up. And all. I mean, he went on for 10 or 15 minutes. And they'd been reading the book Point Man. And you know, all this stuff was happening. And I'm listening to this guy. And I'm thinking, this is real interesting. And when he took a breath, I said, can I interrupt you for a minute? He goes, sure. I said, now. You know I'm not Church of Christ. Do you know that? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. 
I, I said, you're clear that I don't believe that you have to be baptized in water to be saved. He goes, yeah, no, that's not a problem. That's not an issue. I said, really? He said, it's not a problem. I said, okay, just as long as you know. And we would send out a little deal that had a doctrinal statement, what we believed. Uh, just so there wouldn't be, because you know, when you're talking about men's stuff or family stuff, you'll get calls from all kinds of different churches. And want to make it real clear what we believe. Well, um, I wound up going up there. And you know the reason I did that is because, and I guess some guys would say, well, I'm not going up there. But, but you know what I thought? I thought, you know, if I can go up there and if I can, uh, if I can teach the scriptures, I'm going to take the opportunity. And I did. And it was really interesting because uh, now if God gives you the opportunity, you better take it. You, you better not dilly-dally around. But I remember at a certain point, uh, I, I was talking about a concept, and I was talking about grace. And I said, you know what's interesting? What, what tends to happen is, is that we're always adding something to the gospel. We just can't take grace straight. We always got to mix it in with something. Uh, and I said, different groups do this. I said, you know, I've been up in the north and I've been up in Minnesota, and they got Lutherans coming out of their ears up there. And I'll talk to Lutheran guys. And, you know, Martin Luther, hey, he came up with the Reformation. But it's interesting, I'll talk to some of these Lutheran guys, and you talk to them about having a relationship with Christ, and you know what they'll say? They'll say, oh, I was confirmed when I was 12. Well, that's wonderful. That's great. What does that mean? Oh, I went through a bunch of classes on doctrine and all this, and it's great. That's wonderful. But see, being confirmed when you're 12, if you're trusting in the fact you were confirmed, you're trusting in the wrong thing. A lot of Lutheran guys trust in the fact they were confirmed. You know? And they're all agreeing with me because they're not Lutherans, you see. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I know a lot of Baptist guys. And Baptist guys are real big on eternal security. But it's, it's interesting. You, you meet a lot of Baptist guys, and you ask them about their relationship with Christ, and they'll tell you that they've been uh, they, they've been a Baptist since they were little kids, and they've been in Sunday school since they were little kids. And their grandfather was a Baptist preacher, and they'll run all this, you know, all this stuff. But when you start talking to them about salvation by faith in Christ alone, now, most guys get it, because that's what Baptists teach. But I run into guys who don't get it. And they're trusting in something else. They're trusting in their Baptist heritage, or they went to Baylor, or they went, which I wouldn't brag about, but hey. <laughs> But David, that's your problem. <laughs> and so they're not Baptist, and they're loving this because I'm going after the Baptist. And then I said, and you know, it's interesting because I've even met some guys in the Church of Christ. And, and to talk with these guys, you would think that water went to the cross and died for their sin and was buried and rose on the third day. But you know, water didn't die for their sin. And water didn't go to the cross, and water wasn't resurrected. Jesus did all those things, not water. If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus, in any way, shape, or form, you don't have a relationship with him. And it got real quiet. <laughs> you know what was interesting? Seriously? They invited me to speak. I couldn't believe this. They invited me to come back and speak at the Church of Christ Evangelism Conference. Wow. And there were 7,000 people there. I was shocked. I was really shocked. Um, 
But I have a good friend who really came to know Christ that weekend, who was raised in that denomination. And for the first time, came to grips with the fact that, wait a minute, I can't add anything to the gospel. Isn't that interesting? See, we all come from different denominations and different groups. And the tendency is, you know, and we know you're not supposed to, but somehow, someway, we want to add something to the gospel. You don't add anything to the gospel. It's the, the gospel by itself. Grace is the power of God. And, and you don't need to juice it. You don't need to put an addendum. See, that's why, that's why Paul was so rough with these guys. It's, it's, it's by grace, in Christ, alone, period. We trust Christ and what he did on the cross. He's the one who paid the, the debt of our sin. You don't add any work to it in any way, shape, or form. See, the scripture is always the authority. The scripture is always the guide. Um, when I was in seminary, I was also working with a college ministry. Uh, and this was in Portland, Oregon. And we had a bunch of gals going to Portland State University, which was a downtown campus. And they had these high-rise dorms. And one of the gals came in and she said, we're having a real problem because we got some of these Mormon guys coming through here. And they're holding Bible studies and they're confusing a lot of, they're, they're confusing a lot of girls. And they agreed that they would meet with a couple of guys if, and they'll even have a debate. And would you be willing to come? So a buddy of mine named Robert Lewis, who now pastors up in Little Rock, Robert and I went down there to meet these two Mormon guys. And there was a room full of these college girls. And we're talking about the gospel. And we went for about two hours. And I'll never forget, because it was kind of coming to the end. And these guys were going into their close mode. I mean, they were ready to close the deal. And uh, you know, there was one, one of the two guys. One of the two guys knew his stuff. The other guy was a little marginal. You could tell he was kind of a rookie. And the guy who was the, uh, the heavyweight, he went, into his, he went into his clothes. And basically his clothes was, well, you've heard, uh, you, you women have heard two different views tonight. And what I would like you to do is, I'd like you to ask God. I'd like you to, to just tonight, in the quietness when you're in your room, I'd like you to ask God which one of these is true. You see, I did that about 10 years ago. I asked God about this, and God told me in my heart this was true. And, uh, and it was my turn. And I said, well, you know, that's really interesting you'd say that. Because, uh, because I did just exactly what you said. I looked at what the scripture said, and I looked at what the Mormon, Book of Mormon said, and I asked God which one of these was true. And he told me, yours was wrong. <laughs> now, the problem we got here is, you say God told you it was true, I say God told me it was wrong. We got a problem. See, what we have is an authority issue here. And what we have to establish is, what is the authority? See, the Bible says salvation is by grace alone. The Book of Mormon says it's by works. And very briefly, I went over with everybody, just real briefly, what it meant when Jesus went to the cross. Um, and, and I went to Colossians where it says when he went to the cross, 
he took that certificate of debt, which consisted of decrees against us. Uh, you know, in, in Colossians. And, and it's interesting because back when, uh, in, in the time of Paul, when you were put in prison, and if, if you committed a crime, and if you were convicted of the crime, what they would do, they would write out a certificate of desk, debt, of debt, D-E-B-T, consisting of decrees against you. So let's say you stole some apples in the uh, marketplace, and you got caught, and you were convicted. So they'd throw you in jail. They'd shut the wooden door. But, but in court, the clerk would write out a certificate of debt saying, uh, Steve Ferraro, Caesar, uh, uh, one year for stealing produce in the marketplace. That was a certificate of debt consisting of decrees against me. And so they throw me in prison. They nail that to the door. Um, what, what Jesus did when Jesus went to the cross was that Jesus took my sin. He took my past sin. He took my present sin. He took my future sin. And by his blood, uh, he paid for my sin. He paid for your sin. Uh, he canceled it out. And as many of you guys know, the last words that Jesus uttered, he gave up his spirit. Uh, Jesus cried out. What were the last words? Anybody remember? It is finished. Which I already heard someone say it's tetelestai, which it is. See, tetelestai can be translated paid in full because when you finish your year sentence, they would take you out, they'd open the door, but before they'd release you, you'd go back to the court clerk and he would take the seal and on that certificate of debt, he would stamp tetelestai. What does that mean? Well, it's finished. You've served out your sentence. But here's what else it means. It means paid in full. Jesus, by his blood, tetelestied all our sin. We don't have to work for forgiveness because Jesus paid it all. And as I'm talking to this girl, I'll never forget this as long as I live. As I'm talking to these college women, this young Mormon guy, I'll never forget this. He said out loud, he said, that's unbelievable. <laughs> and I said, you know, it is. I said, but it's believable. I don't have to work for it. I can't, and you don't either. And I said, you know, you can, you can ask Christ to come into your life. And, and boy, then the, then the heavy stepped in. Yeah. You see? But this guy heard this. He'd never heard that before in his life. He was thunderstruck. He said, that, that's unbelievable. It is, isn't it? But believe it. They all want to add something to it. We don't add to it. Now, Paul goes on here. He talks about the true circumcision. Uh, in verse 3, we're the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when he's talking about this circumcision, this true circumcision, uh, what's he talking about here? What, what, is this, what is this all about? Well, you know, I think what he's talking about in, in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, it talks about the true circumcision of the heart. We've said this before in here, that, that Christianity is always an issue of the heart. The Jews, the Jews, their emphasis was on outward circumcision. Uh, as we'll see in a minute, Paul talks about that. That was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. God made this deal with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and every covenant had a sign. Well, the sign was circumcision. Uh, 
But Paul goes on in Romans 2 and talks about that this circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. It's inside. See, it's not an external thing. Uh, it, it's, it's a heart relationship with the Lord. That's the genuine thing. That's the true thing. Um, Paul goes on and he says, if anyone else has a mind, he's in, he's in verse 4 here. Uh, he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. What he's going to do now is that he's going to take on these Judaizers. He's going to say to these guys, hey, if you want to add something to the gospel, if you want to add works to the gospel, uh, then let's, 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 let's go for it here. If, if you want to start comparing resumes, if you want to start comparing balance sheets, spiritually speaking, uh, what, what Paul's going to do here is that Paul is going to list uh, his assets. He's going to list everything he's got going for him spiritually in the plus column, and believe me, he had it going for him. I, I want you to note uh, the different things that he mentions. And, and you got to understand with the Judaizers, you talk about throwing some weight around. You talk about impressive. If somebody wants to go on the basis of adding works to the gospel, if anybody could do that, it was Paul. Here's what he says. He says, number five, in verse 5, he says, uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He wasn't any Johnny-come-lately to Judaism. He wasn't a guy who converted later to Judaism. He was born into a Jewish family and on the eighth day, he did it exactly the way it was supposed to be done. So you talk about roots. He had the roots. Next thing he says, he says, of the nation of Israel, uh, specifically of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that's not a big deal to us. It was a big deal to them. Because the tribe of Benjamin was a small tribe that had a glowing history. Uh, the, the tribe of Benjamin well, Benjamin was who? Benjamin was the youngest son of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Um, of his 12 boys, his two favorite were Joseph and Benjamin, who were born to him by his wife by the name of who? Rachel. Rachel was, was the wife. His boys were uh, Joseph and Benjamin. Those were his favorite boys. It was the tribe of Benjamin from whom the first king of, uh, of Israel uh, came from. Uh, it was the tribe of Benjamin when, when the kings, when the, when the nation split, uh, the tribe of Benjamin didn't go with the northern tribes. They stayed true. Now, the, so the tribe of Benjamin threw a lot of weight. See, what, what Paul's doing here, he's throwing out his credentials. He, he's not saying, I went to Chickasaw Junior College here. I went to Stanford. I went to Harvard. I went to Yale. That's what this guy's doing here. Uh, he, he's throwing out his SAT scores here. And, and see, to us, we're reading this. What is this stuff? This was big stuff to these guys. I mean, he's nailing them with, with, with all of his credentials. He goes on, and he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. See, the Pharisees, we think of the Pharisees as the bad guys because they sort of were. But compared to the Sadducees, they were pretty good guys. Because, see, the Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did. Uh, yeah, they added a bunch of stuff, but compared to the other groups that were around, the Pharisees were pretty solid. Paul was of the Pharisees. He was taught by Gamaliel. 
who is the teacher of teachers. Remember, somehow God is able not only to forgive sin, but to forget it. Our problem is we can't forget it. But we need to learn to forget it. How do you forget it? By going to the cross and by going to Christ and receiving the forgiveness and letting it, um, let, soaking in it, immersing yourself in it. Um, that's how you do it. Forget, see, hey, you know what? We're running a race. And when you're running a race, you got to keep your eye on where you're going. Isn't that what he's saying here? Look at that verse. He says here, he says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you're always listening to the enemy, you're going to be looking back. You're not supposed to be looking back. This one thing I do, forgetting that stuff. Right after the Civil War was done, Robert E. Lee was making his way back home. And, and he stopped at what had been a beautiful plantation just for some refreshment. And a lady came out and had this magnificent house and this magnificent plantation. And the house was still upright. It had been scarred some. But as she served Robert E. Lee some, some lemonade or whatever he was drinking, she said, Mr. Lee, I have to tell you, right where you're standing was the most magnificent oak tree in, in this state. And this oak tree had been several hundred years old. And this oak tree, people would come from miles around and when you would come into the front entrance of our plantation, the first thing you would see would be this oak tree. And, and it, it cast shade, and we would have picnics, and we would have parties. She said this, th this, this oak tree was the centerpiece of our family. But those Yankees came along, and out of spite, they destroyed that oak tree. And all that's left is that stump that you see. And the bitterness was just spewing out of this lake. And Mr. Lee, who was a southern gentleman, looked at her and he said, my dear lady, cut it down and forget about it. Some great advice. See, all she could see was that stump. She couldn't forget what a great, cut it down. Just cut it down and forget about it. That's good advice for us. Jesus has already cut the sin down. He's forgotten about it. Now, need we, we need to forget about it. Some of you guys remember when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile mark. Some of you guys were running with him, probably. <laughs> Didn't that happen down at the aerobic center? On uh, May 6, 1954, Bannister broke the four-minute mile mark. Never been done before. Now, that's a race a lot of people remember because it was the first time it had ever been done. But according to Bannister, that's not really the race that he thinks was his greatest race. Let me read to you his own testimony. Uh, he says the record lasted, that was May 6, 1954. The record lasted all of 46 days. On June 21st, John Landy, who had also been in the race, who was an Australian miler, who was a great miler, 
On June 21st, Landy lowers it to 358. Now, Bannister had run 359.4. Isn't that amazing? Nobody had ever broken four minutes. Bannister breaks it. A few days later, some guy goes a second and a half. I mean, it's all mental, isn't it? So Landy lowers it to 358. That set up a match between these two at the last British Empire Games in Vancouver, a race Bannister considers more significant than the first four-minute mile because it was a match race. Bannister says it was a head-to-head -head race without guys setting a pace. Whoever could win could reasonably call the world's fastest man. There was a finality about this race. Landry had always led. He led in that race. He really began to leave me at the half-mile mark. But I was able to catch him at the last bend. And just as we were coming around that last bend, just yards from the finish line, Landy looked over his left shoulder to see where I was. And as he looked back over his left shoulder, I passed him on the right and beat him to the table. That was Roger Bannister's most memorable race. Landy had it. Why did he lose it? He couldn't forget what lied behind. Couldn't do it. We have to do it. We press on. Have we screwed up? Yeah. Yeah, we've all screwed up. But the grace of God covers that. He's got something for us to do. He's got something for you to do. He's got something for me to do. So let's press on. Let's press on. Living in the grace and mercy, and forgiveness of Christ. Aren't you glad there aren't 1,500 regulations that we got to worry about this Sunday? Man, I am. I'm so glad about that. I, I, I'm so glad that after I calmed down and I was pulling in the parking lot, I said, you know, Lord, I can't get up and teach. I haven't cussed this guy. Um, gosh, I was embarrassed. Lord, I, I, I confess that sin to you. Would you forgive me? If we, for, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the gospel. I wouldn't add anything to that. Would you? No. Father, thank you. Thank you for that gospel that has set us free. Lord, may we protect the gospel. May we be so careful with it. When, when others add to it, may we be courageous enough to speak up and to say that's incorrect. Uh, never let us, Lord, uh, stop being amazed at the gospel. Never let us stop being just so overwhelmed by your goodness and grace that you would forgive us and that you would forget. Uh, we tend to uh, carry shame, Lord, from our past. We, we, we are embarrassed. We, uh, it, it's so easy to look back over our shoulder. But Lord, help us to stop listening to the voice of the enemy and to start listening to the truth of the Word of God and to walk in faith and to look ahead 
at the prize, just as Paul did. Use us this week, Lord. We'd like to be used by you. We want our lives to count. We don't know how that might happen, but, but Lord, as we walk out of here, we, we would say to you that we make ourselves available to you. Lord, there have got to be some people around where we are, where you have placed us. There's got to be somebody who needs to know about you. There's got to be someone within their lives that you're working. Lord, might you surprise us this week. Might you give us an opportunity that, that, that someone would, would virtually come up and ask us about the hope that lies within us. Use us, Lord. Give us a chance to share the gospel. And may we share it in its purest form. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate you. Go fight the good fight.